0: What is your favorite Christmas memory? My memories of Christmas as a child are a bit fuzzy. It feels like it's getting fuzzier and fuzzier year by year. But I was thankful to get a steady diet of Christmas carols and hymns. But mixed in with the classics were more eccentric works, not based on the scriptures. It turns out The Silent Night was not interrupted by The Little Drummer Boy um, Rudolph is not historical, even if they told him you'll go down in history. And there is no Frosty, except the ones at your local fast food Wendy's. Yet all these characters were part of my childhood. Now, as parents, Ira and I have to think about how to teach Nathaniel to distinguish fact from fiction. It's interesting to look back at the lyrics uh, of these songs. and I was just thinking last week about Santa Claus is coming to town. How the song was supposed to be a motivation to make the nice list and avoid the naughty list. It seems strange now how Santa would act as sort of like a judge and know my life in all its intimate details. It also seems strange that he'd visit me with gifts down the chimney Now, what if you live in the apartments? Why not just leave the package at the door like the Amazon delivery guys? But on a more serious note, the idea that a saintly figure discerning between good and evil, knowing our moral standing, and visiting our town, strikes a chord with us, dare I say it feels somewhat theological. It's just not Santa. Closer to reality is Jesus, his return, and the final judgment. But even 2,000 years ago, as our Lord walked the earth, he visited various towns, villages, and cities as their judge. It was kind of a foreshadowing of some sense. And no doubt there were all kinds of reactions. Some didn't want him there, others were excited. Those who expected rewards, a miracle, those who expected punishment. Now, we weren't there back then, but what if we were? What if there was news that Jesus Christ is coming to town, yours? What is the proper response? And we'll see that in today's sermon passage as we resume our studies in the Gospel of Luke And it's been a while, so let me review for a few moments. Luke is the longest book of the New Testament by word count. So instead of going through it all at once, over the years I've portioned it into four parts. One Christmas season, I preached from his first two chapters alongside the first two chapters of Matthew. Another time, I preached from Luke 3 to nearly the end of chapter 9, covering the adult ministry of Jesus, Then there's this large middle chunk of the book that stretches from chapters 9 to chapter 19. It's called the travel narrative, one of the unique features of Luke. As the name suggests, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. But what's so special or different about this trip? He's been back and forth from Galilee to Jerusalem many times over. Yet this time, something in our Lord's demeanor changed. We read in chapter 9, verse 51, He steadfastly set His face to go to Jerusalem. It tells us why in chapter 13, verse 33, It cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Again, later in chapter 18, verse 31, He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Jesus went to that city to be the prophet and fulfill the prophets. So now in chapter 19, verse 28, he's right at the threshold. And in the next few months, we're going to follow our Lord in and around Jerusalem through the last few chapters of Luke. And it's entirely appropriate to do this Interestingly, all the gospel writers, not just Luke, spent much ink narrating what happened that week leading up to the crucifixion. And Not only that, the burial and the resurrection. So, By one count, Matthew, Mark, and Luke together devote about 40% of their work focusing on their days. As per John, they say about 66%. Is as if to say, let's slow down and talk about what happened that eventful week. So we'll take that cue from Luke and slow down ourselves. My hope is to land on Luke 24 on Resurrection Sunday on April 9th. Today we begin with Luke 19, 28-44, to Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So let's read that now. So if you have your Bible, or if you're using the pew Bible, you'll find it in page seven thirty six. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, "Go into the village opposite you, where, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which." No one has ever said, loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why are you loosing it, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was Now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially this, in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Structurally speaking, I want to point out the repeated verb, draw near. You'll find it three times. In verse 29, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany. In verse 37, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount Olives. Finally, in verse 41, now as he drew near, he saw the city. The verb marks off three episodes. Now within these three sections, there are three lessons. In verses 28 to 36, two disciples are getting a lesson on obedience. In verses 37 to 40, the Pharisees are put in their place as Jesus teaches concerning true worship. Then in verses 41 to 44, there's a sudden change in the mood. We learn something about our Lord's compassion as he weeps over Jerusalem. So with these divisions in place, I say that there are three ways to prepare for Jesus and welcome him into our own lives. One, obey Christ, who is Lord over all. Obey Christ, who is Lord over all. That's verses 28 to 36. Two, worship Christ the King who demands praise. That's verses 37 to 40. Worship Christ the King who demands praise. That's verses 37 to 40. Three, imitate Christ and his heart for the lost. Verse 41 to 44. Imitate Christ and his heart for the lost, 41 to 44. Let's think about these principles as we start 2023 and strive to be better followers of Jesus. So first, obey Christ who is Lord over all. Now this point is simple, so I'll spend more time setting up the scene and come back to this idea, very simple idea of obedience. And I'll just make a general point about your study of scriptures. Maybe some of you guys have Bible reading plans. And as you study the scriptures, you'll notice that certain events are narrated more than once. For example, in Genesis 1, Moses provides a quick summary of the creation week, including the sixth day. In chapter 2, we're given more details of what happened on that sixth day. Later, you'll find many events of David's life first told in 2 Samuel, but later repeated in 1 Chronicles. Then we have the accounts of kings from that line, from his line, not only in 1 and 2 Kings, but also in 2 Chronicles. And at times, you'll not only see double, you'll see triple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record John's baptism of Jesus, the calling of his first disciples, his Sabbath controversies, parables, transfiguration, just to name a few. And then if you go on, you'll notice not only double and triple, but even quadruple. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, present John the Baptist as the forerunner of Jesus. All four narrate the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, and, as relevant to us, Today, Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem also found in four Gospels, along with the preparation for it. As expected, there are similarities and differences between the four, some interesting, others not so much. Now, let me be clear on this, and some liberal theologians may say otherwise. The Gospel writers never, ever made up or fabricated some detail to add to what actually happened. We know from our own experience that different people highlight different facts of the same event. Or they may notice different features of the same location. That's because individuals are different. So for example, my family visited Pittsburgh in 2021. My my wife loves photography. So she had her eyes on climbing the Duquesne Incline I'm a football fan, so I wanted to drive by the stadium where the Steelers play, formerly known as Heinz Field. I thought about borrowing a Ravens jersey and taking a selfie picture in front of it. Next time. Now, Nathaniel's too young, so he'll probably not recall anything. But if he could, I'm guessing he'd really like the zoo. Now, Despite our different recollections, all three of us were there. And we would retell the story with our own favorite highlights. It goes to show that multiple authors may emphasize different parts of one story. And so we see the individual styles. Okay, now back to the preparation for the triumphal entry. What's especially interesting here is how each writer presents the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Start with Matthew, he noticed that there was a donkey along with the colt. Both were used, and that proves the complete, exact fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. John also cites from that messianic prophecy, but he also comments that the disciples did not understand its significance at the moment. Mark and Luke aren't as interested in that particular connection, but they do tell us, that no one has sat on this colt before. This note that the beast was never saddled or yoked is likely another Old Testament allusion. Consider the red heifer in Numbers 19 and Deuteronomy 21. In 1 Samuel 6, there are those milk cows that pull the cart carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Like these, the colt has not been used before. This colt symbolizes complete and un. Divided devotion to God. So Back to the main point of, the first main point here. So it appears that there's not much in Luke that differs from the other three. But there is this one small detail that I found interesting. Luke includes the words the two disciples actually said to the inquirers. Now it's nothing profound, nothing to get overly excited about. In verse 34, they simply say, the Lord has need of him. That is the cult. We don't need to dig deeper than is necessary there. Their obedience was simple. They added nothing. They embellished nothing. The two said what Jesus told them to say. They obeyed Christ, who is Lord of all, Lord over all. We should do the same and realize that obedience doesn't have to be complicated can be simple as just repeating what the lord told us to say so that's the first point and now that the scene is prepared let's go on to verses 37 to 40 we learn there the second way to welcome christ worship christ the king who demands praise We're getting close to the gates of Jerusalem, and now we hear the cheers and exultation of the crowds. Again, we observe in the Gospels how different authors emphasize different details. It appears Luke was keen on the sights and sounds of Jesus' disciples, not merely the multitudes in general. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and John recall that they cried out, Luke says the disciples in particular rejoiced and praised God with a loud voice. That word praise is worth noting. We see it in the beginning of this gospel and at the very end of the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 13, on that first Christmas day, there in the fields near Bethlehem was a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Later in the same chapter, in verse 20, after they met Jesus, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And skipping ahead to the final verse of Luke, chapter twenty four, verse fifty-three, after Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. The humble birth of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus, his descension from heaven, his ascension back to heaven. These are all occasions for worship. And as we see in today's passage, so is the occasion of his entrance into Jerusalem. The disciples have observed the miracles Jesus performed over the years. They could not help but worship. They recognize his kingship in verse 38, citing from Psalm 118. Interestingly, Luke leaves out the Hebrew word Hosanna, perhaps catering to his Gentile audience, Theophilus, But he does include in the second half of verse 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Again, this worship echoes the words of heaven on the night Jesus was born, back in chapter 2, verse 14. Luke wants us to know that the peace and glory Christ brings us are great. This peace and glory go beyond Israel, beyond the Roman Empire, and even beyond this world. It was at this point that the religious leaders, they had enough. Some of the Pharisees called from the crowd, their voice rebuking instead of rejoicing. And they say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. See how they were willing to accept them as teacher, but they were not willing to accept him as the King of Glory and the Prince of Peace. This isn't the first or last time the enemies of Christ are hot and bothered by genuine worship directed to God's Son. And later in the same day, they'll have more to say as Jesus cleanses the temple, heals the blind and the lame, and accepts the praise of children. But both times, Jesus was ready with the rebuttal. God demands worship So the worshipers have no right to remain silent. If they do, the stones would cry out. Here's another interesting allusion to the Old Testament. Many think that Jesus is borrowing from the words of prophet Habakkuk. Now, if you want to follow along with me, keep your finger on this page and follow with me to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 9 to 11. Habakkuk 2. 9-11. 9-11. To set up the scene, in this passage, the prophet is condemning those who act wickedly and greedily. The Habakkuk 2, 9-11 says, Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered From the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples, and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Now you you might ask, what in the world do coveting evil gain and shameful counsel have to do with these surly Pharisees? Here's how I see the analogy. The prophet Habakkuk announced that committing crimes for financial gain demands justice. Now, Jesus announces that omitting times of spiritual worship demands justice, too. It's a sin to take what's not yours from fellow humans. It's also a sin to keep back what rightly belongs to God. And we know exactly what rightly belongs to God in passages like Revelation seven twelve, Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So if the stones would cry out, and if, as Psalm 98, 7-8 says, the seas roar, the rivers clap their hands, and the hills are joyful together, How much more should we lift up our voices in praise? The best worship should flow from the best of creation, we who are created in God's image. We should be leaders in worship of God's Son, through whom also the Father made the worlds. We must worship Christ, the King, who demands praise. In one of my former churches, I remember watching the praise leader, Getting visibly frustrated with the lack of enthusiasm during congregational singing. As pastor, I was asked at times what we can do about that. Well, here's what I'm not going to do I can't force you to sleep early Saturday morning, get to service on time. I can't make you do your devotions and prepare your hearts for worship. We're not going to set up a drum set. I'm not hooking up my electric guitar. At this point, we're probably far from having an orchestra or a co-ed choir. But those are not essential. The disciples at the triumphal entry had Jesus, and they had their voices. That's all they needed for true worship. Now, while there may be rejoicing and praising among disciples on Sundays, we must at some point turn to face the world. And here's here's where we learn something else from Jesus. As we welcome him in our lives through obedience and worship, we also learn something about his compassion. So We find in verses 41 to 44 how to imitate Christ and his heart for the lost. Keep in mind that this wasn't the first time Jesus was distraught over the city of Jerusalem. He lamented back in chapter 13, verse 34 to 35. If you want to flip back there with me, it's chapter 13, 34 to 35. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You look at that last verse of chapter 13, and you might think, hey, wait a minute. Didn't the people at the triumphal entry say those words, Blessed is he or king who comes in the name of the Lord? We heard those words in chapter 19, verse 38. Well, remember, Luke's careful to say that it was Christ's disciples who genuinely praised him. Even if there were those in Jerusalem who were excited, most were not sincere. The city as a whole did not welcome Jesus. That's why Christ's words in verse 42 starts with, If you had known, and then it ends at verse 44 with, Because you did not know. Now, what is it that they could have known but didn't know? If you were here a few weeks ago, I mentioned on Christmas Day that Christ was born on time in history. In accordance with Daniel 9, Jesus was born with enough time to grow up and present himself to Jerusalem and his people as Messiah the Prince. But as John eight nineteen tells us, they did not know God's Son or his Father who sent him. So they did not know the things that make for their peace. There's a sad wordplay here. Jerusalem means the city of peace. Yet it did not know peace. It did not know peace because it did not know Jesus. What's plain and obvious was hidden from their eyes because of stubborn unbelief. And there is a great cost to such unbelief not believing that Jesus is God's son. Again, we see in John eight twenty four, Jesus himself said, if we, do not, if we do not believe that he is who he said he is, we will die in our sins. Along with those eternal consequences, there was also a national disaster on the horizon. As hinted back in chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus desired to protect Jerusalem from their enemies, but they were not willing. Christ wanted to be like a hen that gathers her brood under her wings. In the arms of Jesus, they could abide under the shadow of the Almighty. But now there is no refuge or fortress. As the Roman armies approached Jerusalem around 70 A.D., They will build an embankment, hem them in, destroy the inhabitants and the structures. All this because God's people did not recognize God's son. Jesus sees the vision of what could have been, would have been, should have been, but ultimately wasn't. So the prophetic eyes of Jesus are filled with tears. He's like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who wrote in his book, chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. What makes you cry? Is it loneliness? Self-pity? Maybe you refuse to shed tears because you're a tough guy. But let me tell you, there's nothing unmanly about crying and, or even weeping. Our Lord, the epitome of manhood, wept for sinners. If we truly imitate Christ and his heart for the lost, we may find ourselves, we may very well cry for our own cities and all the lost around us. Amazingly, Jesus cries for others, even though in a few days he'll go to the cross And suffer terribly. He will be betrayed by men and be forsaken by God. Yet even then, he'd look at the women weeping for him and say in chapter 23, verse 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Imitate Christ and his heart for the lost. We may take on this challenge and perhaps become so Christ-like that we weep at the thought of lost sinners. Still, we ourselves cannot save anyone from hell. This is why the gospel is so precious. We can point to Christ who does more than shed tears. He shed his own blood. That's why it was predicted again in Daniel 9.26 that the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Jesus himself did not do anything wrong to deserve such suffering in Jerusalem. He is the Lord overall, the King of glory, Prince of Peace. This one came to earth as God's Son and God's representative, yet we as sinners did not welcome him. Like the Pharisees, we rejected him and withheld the praises due to him. Like the city of Jerusalem, we did not know the way of peace. We'd much rather Live for our own praises and seek the peace which comes from the world. So, because of our stubborn unbelief and guilt, we deserve God's judgment. And we're not just talking about enemy invasion, siege, warfare, and destruction of our society. We're talking about everlasting fire, judgment and destruction, torment day and night forever and ever, the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. To save us from that, Jesus entered Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. He entered as the humble king. He was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. There, this ruler over the kings of the earth loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He made peace through it and made reconciliation available. Now, the decisions before you. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Repent, turn away from your sin, yourself, self-righteousness. Trust in Jesus, turn to him for entrance into heaven. You cannot earn your way there, but but you can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So before you learn to obey, worship, and imitate Christ, I hope you trust in Christ for salvation. Let this song be an invitation, or for many of us, a reminder that through the gospel, the Father gives us endless hope and peace. Let's pray. Lord, we look forward to that day when your son descends from heaven, sets his feet on Mount Olives, and enters Jerusalem again. Until that day, may we make it a priority to live for you, to live for your glory, to be like your son, imitate him, to worship him, and obey him in all that we do. Ask that you would challenge us this week. What does it mean to be a follower of your son? We thank you, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.